0: Stand together on got to be
1: together we all fall down. Welcome to This is Civity. I'm Gina Valeria. Civity is a culture of deliberately engaging in relationships of respect and empathy with others who are different, moving people from us versus them to we all belong. To learn more, go to civity.org. In this episode, we talk with Monica Guzman, Senior Fellow for Public Practice at Braver Angels and author of I Never Thought of It That Way, How to Have Fearlessly Curious Conversations in Dangerously Divided Times. Monica at first dedicated her career to connecting people across differences through journalism, but then moved into the bridging space to find a more effective way to bring people together in relationship. Through it all, she's been driven by a deep curiosity about others and the stories that shape our lives and perspectives. I'm thrilled to have you here, Monica, so thank you so much for taking the time. First of all, before we get into the work and the book and all of that, why this? What led you to doing this type of work, or how did you come to this work?
0: So there's two threads that led me to this work around bridging differences in particular on the political divide, which is a very fraught one for this moment. Yes. One is professional and one is personal. The professional one is that as uh, soon as I got out of college, I went right into journalism. I love journalism. I have this fascination with people and how we surprise each other. I found this weird way to get almost addicted to disappearing into someone else's story. My husband once watched me uh, interview someone, just happened to be there next to me. And later he was like, It's like I saw you in a trance. (laughs) And I said, yeah, I guess it was. I've never said that out loud before. Oh, wow. That that memory popped in my mind. Cool. But I do. I I love getting lost in people's stories. And one thing that I've appreciated in in that is that it feels important that people understand each other. Uh, It feels important to the whole civic project that we're engaged in by being part of the United States of America, let alone the world and all of that. So the last several, several years, who knows how many exactly, it started to feel like if I wanted to help people understand each other, doing it by being a journalist wasn't cutting it for me anymore because our media ecosystem is so splintered and siloed. So if I told the story as responsibly as I could into this media product, it would reach these silos but not these others. And then increasingly these others would actually distrust the story I just told. So it's like, well, that's not working. The other thread that led me to this was my family. So I'm uh, a Mexican immigrant. I'm the daughter of Mexican immigrant parents, and they voted one way in the last two presidential elections. And I voted the other. Uh, And, this wasn't a huge surprise because when we became American citizens in the year two thousand, they immediately became Republicans, and I immediately became a Democrat. So the journey we've been on has been uh, full of loud conversations, uh, lot you know, lots of heat, um lots of yelling, a little bit of storming out of rooms. and And I laugh at it because it's sometimes funny, but it's sometimes not funny. Uh, and especially in the last few years, it's it's decidedly unfunny, uh, some of these political differences and, and where they come from and what they animate in us. So the to make a very long story short on that front, I have somehow been part of this thing with my parents where we have actually been able to understand each other's reasons for voting the way we vote, believing what we believe politically, uh, and then Looking around at so many other families, hearing about the pain of rupture, completely different situations and circumstances where talking is is not possible or it is unimaginable or seems counterproductive or too painful, all of these things just made me somewhat uh, interested to obsessed with the question of what is keeping us from seeing each other and how do we get it out of our way?
1: As a lot of people, I am in a very similar boat. My parents are a different political persuasion than I am. And it has been fraught, although, you know, if you lead with love, I think it's better. But for them, it was not necessarily yelling, but pain. Like they were hurt. There was a point where they thought I thought they weren't smart. And I don't think that. And I never thought that. But it stunned me. And my mom would look at me during the Trump administration. She's like, honey, you're so unhappy. And I was
0: like, but I, I mean, I don't think I'm unhappy. It's funny. My mom would tell me the same thing. My mom would look at me and say, "You look, you look like you're really suffering and pained," and I worry for that. Yes, because she's my mother, and that's her job. Yes. And, and there was love there. There's a lot of love in that. Yes, and I think I, I,
1: I'm going to ask you how you think you got to a point of understanding with your parents. But I think part of it is that is recognizing that the love is there. But how do you think you got to that point of understanding or remembered the love and that you do love this person in the midst of it all? How do you think you got there?
0: Part of it is this sense that we never left that place which again, I I like to say, you know, this is just my experience with my family. So lots of really challenging conversations. But uh, and I'll be a little funny about this, too. You know, there's one Latino stereotype that we really do conform to. uh, (laughs) And that is sort of loud and unfiltered. (laughs) So (laughs) awesome. (laughs) Growing up, uh, you know my parents, I know a lot of parents who you know if they have an argument, they go behind closed doors. their children don't see it. We saw it all all the time <laughs> and so <laughs> and so we would see my parents me uh, by by we I see me and my brother uh we would see my parents fight, and we would see them make up over and over and over again, and so then we would disagree with our parents because it felt safe. We would disagree, and we would make up um. You know, so there was this this culture in my family around you just kind of know that it's okay to say how you really if you're angry, just tell me you're angry, you know, and I'll be angry back, but we'll probably be okay. Uh, and, you know, sometimes it got, again, pretty heated. Uh, and yet there was just something that just sort of always felt like it could contain that level of anger. And so when politics came around, it became excruciating after the 2016 election, that kind of, that joined that particular family culture that we had developed. And I know that for many families, you know, p- part of it is like, there's this culture of, of peace um, that is really difficult to suddenly bring in something really important to any of a number of the people in that family if they really care about a political issue, because there will not be peace. There will not be peace. And so is it handleable? And if it's if it's newer for that group of people to try, it can feel so dangerous to the relationships. That's a big piece of it. Um, but one other thing I will say is because my parents and I talk about this all the time and sometimes we've talked about it in public. And one thing that my dad keeps bringing up is even when we talk about politics, we don't just talk about politics. Like suddenly we'll we'll remember a memory of something and my dad will go, remember when you were little and you did this? And he'll pull out his phone and he has done this ridiculous thing where he's actually organized all of our family photos going back to before I was born. And he's got it all digitized, look, look, look. And then, so suddenly we were talking about Trump and Biden or whatever. And suddenly we're looking at me when I was three years old laughing. And like, I'm not saying it's always possible. Sometimes I'm like, hey, can we stick to what we're talking, you know, But, but there's this way of mixing in other things having other ways that we interact where politics is really important and really heated, but but there's more going on. And so it weaves in and out. Yeah,
1: that more going on thing. I love that you said that. So, you know, at Civity we an analogous thing is the conversation before the conversation. So before we talk about all those things, you know, if we're not in a family together and we don't have that practice of being able to disagree with each other, then um, how do we see each other? How do we find the point where we see each other so we can start doing that? So so when you talk about, for us, the conversation before the conversation, for you, like it's about more, it's not just the politics. There's other stories, other things. How does that play into the work you do now when you're trying to help people understand or
0: bridge? The cutesy little rhyme I have in my head is relate before you debate. Ooh. Right? I love it. <laughs> I love, it. love coming up with little rhyme. <laughs> 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 but basically the idea there is, we have such different lenses on the world. And when we come together and the first thing we do is share our opinions on a political issue, there there's nothing to tie it back to who we are and the journeys that we have walked. It can get very cerebral very quickly, and it can get kind of up here in the clouds very quickly. And when you're up there in the clouds, stuff can get zany very quickly. And you you start to just maneuver around the knots, they're tying and untying. You're getting in there and tying and untying the knots. And pretty soon, like, it's all kind of vague. And and what, what it becomes is a proxy for, I'm right. I matter more. My position matters more. You don't think I matter. So I'm going to just stay here and fight. And it doesn't even matter what you're really talking about. But when you're able to come together and see each other and, you know, see that's a person. The things you can do... To have the conversation before the conversation, you can even have during the conversation. By doing something as simple as, as you're explaining or you're trying to help the other person see your perspective on a tough issue, you're not just giving them your reasons for believing it. You're telling them a story of the path you walked to the view that you have. And there is such a world of difference between those two things. If you give people reasons, they'll give you their reasons, and then you'll repeat your reasons, and then they'll repeat your reasons to you, except it'll be louder and louder and louder. But if you, if you tell them a story from, from who you are and what you've experienced, they can say, oh, okay, there's a way that we can accept someone else's path and the story that they've had without accepting the political conclusion that they've made. And that helps people feel heard and seen, which allows them to then hear you back. Um, I always say, like, people can only hear when they're heard, especially when there's suspicion, where there's distrust. So that's it. So the, the conversation within the conversation, if you make it more about the people than just the ideas, then really what you're doing is unwrapping something of yourselves to each other. And, and that's really what we're doing when we're having a constructive conversation.
1: That kind of harkens me back to what you said at the beginning when you talked about when you were a journalist, how you would go into a trance while interviewing people. And then, of course, you've mentioned, I really enjoyed when you said interested to obsessed with trying to get people to understand each other, because I get that. And w- I wanted to ask you, why do you think you were in such a trance? Why do you think other people's stories was something
0: that that enraptured you so much. I mean, the first thing that comes up is I think it is so cool when people talk about the things that they love. And so the kind of journalism that I did, it was a lot of that. It was go talk to this person who started this club, you know, for Vespa riders around Seattle. Okay. Uh, You know, or this person who has ended up really fighting for this extraordinary cause you know, and the, and the big question for me is what led her to be the person that has made such a difference in her community? What, and I, and I come to that person going, what led you to make that? And so it's a detective story. It's a mystery. And usually the way that it gets dynamic and fun and profound is when I connect with the thing that they love, that drives them. You're you're helping me realize something actually like dots I had not really fully connected before. But really that's that's it. It's like we often wanna, you know, we approach someone else and go, "I I think you hate this. I want to know why you hate this. There's something you hate." But what if you asked, "Is there something you love more? Is there something you love behind the thing that I think you hate?" We have this this assumption we make in our politics that if you oppose what I support, you must hate what I love, and so we'll come into disagreements asking that question: Why do you hate freedom? Why do you hate, you know, my autonomy? Why do you hate my sense of safety? Why do you want? But a better question than why do you hate X is what do you love more? Like what do you love that I'm not seeing that pushes you in this other direction? So that's something that really um, intoxicated me was figuring out, like, finding that thing. Like, at first, the interviews would just be kind of technical. You know, it's this woman from the newspaper. She just wants to know about my, you know, gosh, I remember one of my first, like, front-page stories when I was an intern in college was about a woman who made these beautiful glass lawn ornaments in Dover, New Hampshire. And I just went to her house. And it was going to be a story about lawn ornaments. Oh, my gosh. But to hear her talk about her love of nature, of birds, what it's like for her to spend time outside. I'm just enraptured because I, I connect, I understand, and I see how her love for this thing has led to this creation of hers that has has made a name for itself in the community. And isn't that so cool? I totally get that. Oh my
1: gosh. When I was an intern, I, I did broadcast journalism. So I was sent, and it wasn't such a friendly, fun story. It was a sad story. But I was sent on this story. A the dog had been killed and I won't get into the details, but I went to the house and they weren't going to send me because I'm a vegetarian animal lover and then there was no one so I just said, I'll go. And I was ready. I knew the story I was going to write, right? Heartless monster kills dog, you know, I had the story ready. But I got there and I met a woman, I was, what, 22 at the time, and I met a young woman who's 22 who lived and in- it was her dog and she- her life was so different from mine and her mom. And I started talking to them, and it turns out like the alley behind their house is pitch black. The lights don't work, and they've been begging the city to fix that. And so I was able to see outside my own, to get a little curious about her, to connect with the people in front of me, and realize, oh, they need something from me to make them feel safer and to make this not happen again. It's to share this story, and so we were actually able to do a meaningful story. You know, because somehow, I don't know how, I was able to get outside my, like, rage of what happened with the with the animal. That's amazing. Yeah, I hold on to that because it just reminds me to kind of get outside myself. And I want to get into curiosity because I know that that's a big thing. It's a big thing for me, and I know it's a big thing for you. But before we actually talk about that in your work now, I want to ask... Were you always that enraptured by other people's stories? How do you think that was cultivated in you? Mm. That enrapturement, that curiosity, that wonder?
0: I remember being a child and being quite scared of people. I was pretty shy. I uh, was a people pleaser as a child. And so a lot of my sense of self-worth was about what other people thought of me. Uh, and, you know, that that was like a lifelong thing that I think I've, I've made some progress on. <laughs> <laughs> but... But back then, boy, you know, if I approached somebody with a question, would I look stupid? Or they won't wanna talk to me, no way. Why would they wanna talk to me? So so all these different things kept me from uh, what I now feel is sort of a a free range (laughs) that I now have to just walk right up to people and be like, tell me about yourself, obviously (laughs) within reason. (laughs) But I'm a raging extrovert today. What led me there I, I really think was that my shyness at the time went up against my fascination with, with learning um, and with surprises and, and just lost. Eventually it just lost the war. I remember one of my first journalism internships, the editor told me that a prior intern had quit after only two weeks because of the fear she had just picking up the phone. And that, that she was telling me, look, you're going to have to, because I was a kid, right? You have to call strangers. And I'm like, oh, my God. And I was thinking to myself, I'm going to make it two weeks. I, I have to make it two weeks. That's, and so I needed to please my editor, right, because of that people-pleasing thing. I'm going to make it two weeks. What I didn't realize I was doing was I was building the muscle that eventually defeated the fear of other people. Um, because, well, I need to tell this story. There's something that's pulling me to journalism. I know I want this internship. I know I can do this. Uh, and so, yeah, I think back to those those early uh, reporting jobs. I still have it in here. I still have it in here, like those landline phones, those kind of gross landline phones that had collected so much dirt in the newsroom desk and what, what like terror I used to feel picking up that phone. And now it's like not a thing. It's just not a thing. Yeah.
1: Now I'll talk to anybody. Yeah. I, I don't know if I was that shy, but I call myself a shy extrovert and the extrovert way wins. So I was noticing that a lot of people former journalists who are now teaching, kids just aren't curious these days. Kids, and I'm like, well, it can't just be that they're somehow different from us, right? Like they've clearly grown up in an environment where it's not, it's got to be something that you cultivate, like a muscle, as you said, that you build. And so I've been, you know, doing some writing around curiosity in news and, and and how to teach it or how to cultivate it. So you're taking this concept of curiosity and applying it to this work of bridging and this journalism adjacent work. Um so I'd love to hear how you've taken curiosity and infused it into bridging work.
0: Yeah. I I find it to be the most useful, yeah, of the intellectual virtues, if you will. There's humility, there's courage is in in a sense an intellectual virtue. Curiosity requires a comfort with uncertainty and A hunger for knowledge, which means you have to recognize what you don't already know. In our political climate, one of the things we're wrecked by is certainty, which is the arch villain of curiosity. Because if you think you know, you won't think to ask. What a lot of research has shown us is that people manufacture certainty about the other side. Uh, For understandable reasons, we're we're afraid, we're anxious. And when we are anxious, you know, cognitive researchers show, we don't want to hang on to uncertainty for very long. So we will accept some easy answer that just comes across our social media feeds about why those other people voted the way they did or think the way they do. It must be this. And we won't even stop to say, wait a minute. You're saying that you read one thought piece on the internet (laughs) with some (laughs) confident sounding statistics and you've decided that you know everything you need to know about 50 million people? Wait a minute, right? Hang on, what are we doing here? And so stereotyping, us versus theming, sorting ourselves into like-minded groups because that's where we feel most comfortable. All of those things are perfectly understandable but have put us in this place where uh, certainty is getting in the way. We believe a lot of things that we have no business thinking we know. And so the only antidote is to ask.
1: You're listening to This Is Civity. I'm Gina Balarea. We're talking with Monica Guzman, Senior Fellow for Public Practice at Braver Angels, and author of I Never Thought of It That Way, How to Have Fearlessly Curious Conversations in Dangerously Divided Times.
0: I don't want to dismiss all media there's really really responsible great journalism that looks for nuance and then there's everything else but there's an economics to it where it does benefit a lot of media to have a loyal audience uh and it's cutthroat out there and the best way to have a loyal audience is to kind of affirm their beliefs or at least be really careful when you don't um so we know that we know that that's true so they're not a great source unnecessarily of the kinds of the kinds of of truth that we really can only access by just going, here's a flesh and blood human being who happens to hold a different point of view. So instead of believing what I've heard about human beings like her or applying the labels or the algorithms my brain has as- assembled from this toxically divided world that is scared, I'm gonna see what I can learn. It'd be one thing if we were already doing that sort of in balance with, yes, get informed by the media, of course, get informed by the media, look around your world, you know, it's a mix, but we don't have the mix right now. We are disengaging, we are distancing, we are telling ourselves that people who disagree with us are a threat, which means we are not doing that balancing, checking thing of having actual relationships and conversations with people that make us go, that media outlet is exaggerating. Well, now we can't tell. Now we don't know, and that's a problem. Right, and those opportunities
1: for us to engage with people who might be different from us don't necessarily exist. I mean, we, we have our phones. Everything is digital. We can stay in our spaces, and it used to be you had to go out and bump up against other people in the course of your life, and you don't have to do that anymore to a great extent. So a lot of people self-select into the bridging space, right? Um, they want to figure it out, and they come in. I'm curious, how do you get out there and help people – feel good about doing this or convince people to join the to try to bridge or to try to have conversations across difference uh what are some you know what are some ways you you approach that
0: I noticed that when you said convince people something inside me went oh no you know because um there's something i hear in our conception of of convincing that says you know there's an argument and so i need to go make the argument and convince people that they need to do this but that's that's not not how I see it most of the time what what I do what I do when I go out there is I try to share my story and I try to share the path I've walked to my view that these things are important and valuable from a lot of different angles in a life for a lot of different reasons in a life when I get asked you know inevitably um some really difficult questions about the barriers people face to this in their own lives um i try to remember those people who have told me stories of their own journeys that offer reasons why even that barrier may not be as big as you think so i feel like what i what i am or do is i've got this collection of stories and i'm constantly sorting them into This story I think really speaks to the person who's worried about X. This story really speaks to the person who's worried about Y. Whether they're going to be convinced is not really my concern. All persuasion is self-persuasion. To quote a friend and author, David McRaney, who wrote a book called How Minds Change. It's a phenomenal book. Uh, All persuasion is self-persuasion. All I can offer is stories and frames. And I can try to offer it in a way that it will be received by a person who is who is afraid or has resistance. And then I very much doubt that right then when I said it, they're gonna be like, okay, great, I'm in. <laughs> no, that's not how this works. Right? Maybe after a while, that story will swim around in their minds with the other stories they've been telling themselves and a new story will form. But whether that new story will actually add up to, I'm gonna give this a try or not, I have no way of knowing.
1: Are there any stories or anecdotes you'd like to share about engaging with people in this work? You mentioned earlier the whole red-blue divide, but I think, and this is specific thought, is that the red-blue divide is really made up of all these other divides that people sort of select into red-blue based on how they feel about certain things. And so it may be something outside the red-blue uh, of people disagreeing about an issue or a topic or across a divide of privilege and marginalization.
0: I host a podcast called A Braver Way and through that podcast we're trying to find and surface and elevate lots of stories. The one that is coming up is from Chris Arnotti. Chris Arnotti is an author. Uh, He's a photographer and he once worked on Wall Street in a very high-paying job moving money around, looking at numbers. And people out there, they were all in these numbers, were moving the numbers around. Um, And basically he ended up starting to walk around New York City and he found himself walking to the neighborhoods that his friends would say, oh, that's sketchy, don't go there. And he would start to walk and then he would start to get to know people who lived in some of the poorest areas of New York City. And he started to feel a certain kind of way about what he did for work. Um, so this is not an episode about the class divide. And um, boy, he really, he, he, his is an extraordinary story. He ended up spending years going across the country to all the places across America that people are like, oh, don't go there. Oh, people should be moving out of that city. There's nothing there anymore. But a lot of people stay and are are forgotten and neglected and there's some large story we tell ourselves about America that doesn't include them. And uh, Chris has made extraordinary connections and relationships and has become best friends. He talks about front row America and back row America. You spend time with him and hear the stories he tells and everything looks different, right? And I just think that's so cool. That's so cool when people do that. And the The fact that what he did, which was just talk to people, is so rare. How is that rare? How did we make all these invisible walls between us? When did we even do that? What
1: about people who've engaged with your podcast or your book or other workshops you've done? Share any anecdotes or stories of people who've come to you and shared their experience of a connection they were able to make or heal or reach across a divide.
0: There was a workshop that Braver Angels did in the Midwest. And I talked to the facilitator of that workshop, who happens to be uh, one of the co-founders of Braver Angels, Bill Doherty. And he talked about a pretty striking moment. The workshop brings red leaning and blue leaning politically people together, and in this case, in person. And so one of the blue people who showed up was a landlord uh, in town, and he had decided, as a rule, never to rent to conservatives because all the reasons, it would be immoral and wrong. So during the course of the workshop, he was paired up with someone who was red-leaning, a conservative, and they had their conversation. At the end of the workshop, this landlord came up to Bill and was kind of in tears about the realization he had had. Um, and he recounted that during his conversation with the conservative man, they were talking and, you know, he's getting to know this guy that, that he had ruled out as a category. He's getting to know him and as a person, as a human being and think past all this animosity he'd he'd built up. And he said, he said like, I disagree with you, he told the conservative, I disagree with you with everything you've just said. But powerful people want us to hate each other. Let's not do it. And so he was telling him and he was telling himself sort of at the same moment. Um, And he told Bill that he just, you know, he had come in really arms crossed. I don't know what friend convinced him to show up. Right. But he he just he recognized something about um, his posture toward people who disagreed with him. that was not him, that he didn't want to do anymore.
1: Oh, that's wonderful. Thank you for sharing that. That's a beautiful story. And then last, I guess, in the anecdote space, Civity and Braver Angels created a joint workshop with the Citizens Climate Lobby to talk about climate change using this relational curiosity work. And and I'm curious if there's any major policy divide where you've seen, not people agree with each other, of course, that's not what we do, but where you've seen people be able to sit down and actually engage, connect, be in relationship with each other after going through and and engaging with this type of bridging work?
0: Oh, yeah. There's several. And there's a couple really incredible ones. And the one I still can't believe is around COVID. Dr. Francis Collins was the head of the National Institutes of Health. He was Anthony Fauci's boss back when we were making COVID policy. He's gotten to know through Braver Angels a lot of the folks who believe that that COVID policy was deeply harmful and that a lot of skeptical questions and concerns were not addressed and dismissed in the course of that crisis. So last year's convention, the Braver Angels convention, boy, um, Dr. Collins was there and did an event on stage uh, with a friend that he's made through Braver Angels, um, a man who leans red in his politics and a friend of mine named Wilk Wilkinson. And uh, they've recorded a couple of conversations that'll just blow your mind. Both Dr. Collins and Wilk are able to practice this humility with each other, um, risk being wrong, just opening up It's really, really remarkable. And that has continued at Braver Angels in something we call the Truth and Trust Project.
1: How do you see the role of relationships in your work?
0: One of the biggest reasons we find ourselves where we are is because we have been having so many conversations in spaces that leave no room for relationships. So, online, this is rampant. I have no connection with this voice that is arguing something. And so again, we're in the clouds, we're up here and we're making it a proxy for something. We're performing our perspectives instead of exploring our perspectives. So relationships are everything because relationship means I'm invested in you somehow and you're invested in me somehow. And so we can't dismiss each other so easily and we see ourselves in each other. I just interviewed somebody recently who was giving me the perspective of, and I think he put it really well, that when you are walking into the room with someone who may really disagree with you, in this case, he is someone who really doesn't like guns and the politics of of guns are really scary to him. He doesn't want to hold a gun. And he's meeting an Olympic trap shooter who's going to teach him how to do this. And he knows the politics are really different. But he was talking about, you know, I came in and they were so welcoming, he said. They were so welcoming that the story in my head took a backseat to the story of us in that moment, of, of friendly welcoming, of, oh my God, and you know, and is she the female John Wick? Like, cool, I get to hang out with the female John Wick? Like, all of a sudden, everything looks different, you know, and this gun that was so scary may not be... So scary right now because I'm in relationship with this woman whose story about guns is, is actually positive and really cool and from a tradition of hunting in Alabama and all these amazing things. So yeah, it's uh, relationship is what allows us I think to you know, look at somebody else's story as good and meaningful even if it is not our story. And and maybe it allows us to edit the larger story that contains us all. And I feel like I need to credit him. Um, he's uh, Baratunde Thurston, and he'll be one of the um, interviews in our new season of the podcast.
1: The larger story that contains us all. I love that. And that sort of phases into... My next question is the importance of bridging work and how you can weave bridging into some of these larger spaces. You know, earlier we talked about journalism and that lack of trust. And and now there's, I know you've been involved with participatory journalism, I believe. How do we maybe apply some of these bridging relational curiosity-focused uh, tenets or practices or lessons into Ecosystems where we're also trying to build trust
0: in media and in a lot of other spaces. Applying curiosity to language is really important. Uh, language becomes a battleground in times like this. What I call, you know, reproductive rights. You know, you may call something very different if you don't believe that abortion should be legal. For example, you know, is it a fetus? Is it an unborn child? depending on what you call it in in your article, you might be sending signals to people about whose view you find natural. Natural enough to just call it that. But what we name issues, what we name the objects of our political debates, how we frame those issues is everything. And so unfortunately, unfortunately, Language has become such a battleground and things have moved so quickly that I think a lot of a lot of folks in media who did not intend to begin to carve people out of their coverage did. And they did not intend to do it. How curiosity comes into that is really looking at the names of our issues. Really looking at the labels we put. Because look, we need language. We need words so that we can grip concepts and do something with them. Um, but sometimes the right thing to do is take a step back and describe the thing instead of trying to pick one of a battleground of names. You know, um, Sometimes you use both names. Uh, and I, I think of um, two folks at Braver Angels, a red-leaning and a blue-leaning woman who did this incredible exercise and realized that if they wanted to talk about the, the stuff that was concerning them around elections, They needed to call it voter, what did they call it? Voter security slash election integrity. Um, They had to like find the term that didn't to them feel like it dismissed one of their concerns. So we have to find some way, we have to find some way to back out of the assumptions we make about language and the assumptions we make about how it perfectly describes this very very hot, very debatable, very contentious thing that is actually trying to contain a lot of different stories. So, yeah, names are fraught. Language is difficult. Um, and it really helps to stop ask questions.
1: My last question for you is that there anything that I didn't ask you um that you would like to say that you feel it's important for people to know?
0: I think a lot of times when people think about bridging, given the climate we're in and how scary it can feel, a lot of times people go to sort of the worst case scenario. Uh, and so, what I like to say into that fear is, you don't have to talk to a Nazi tomorrow. <laughs> Nobody's asking True. you to do that. You don't got to do that. Please don't do that. That's actually right. Yeah, terrible idea. And so, cu- curiosity across difference does not have to look like the scary thing you imagine. It can look like I'm having a conversation with someone else, and we don't see something the same way. But before I jump in to say how I see it, I'm going to ask one more question about how they see it. And through that real curiosity, I'm going to demonstrate my interest and I'm going to learn something more. And that person will see that and will feel more heard. And so then when I begin to talk about whatever I want to talk about, it is just more likely that they're going to listen. So it's things like that. It's like expressing your opinion not so rigidly all the time. You know, research shows us that using what's called hedging language. You know, right now, as I think about it, this is what concerns me about abortion. But I'd love to hear what you think. We think, oh, that sounds weak. Nope. Studies show there is nothing weaker about that. That is not perceived as weaker at all. Uh, There is nothing that is perceived as less capable of leadership about that it actually creates a context where people feel they can be more honest. Who doesn't want that? If we're not honest together, we're not together. (laughs) So let's get honest. Thank you
1: so much. I am so grateful to you for taking the time. Thank you to my guest, Monica Guzman, Senior Fellow for Public Practice at Braver Angels and author of I Never Thought of It That Way, How to Have Fearlessly Curious Conversations in Dangerously Divided Times. Civity is a culture of deliberately engaging in relationships of respect and empathy with others who are different, moving people from us versus them to we all belong. To learn more, go to civity.org.
0: Left, right, black or white, we all dream about the same things tonight. Let's wake up people, it's time to build a brand new day. Stay. Yeah.